0: You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing religious appropriation, the act of adopting religious practices without making a commitment to the religious communities from where we're borrowing. What are common examples of religious appropriation that many of us might be engaged in right now? How can religious appropriation contribute to marginalizing some religious groups, even when the intent is to show solidarity? And is it possible to borrow from religious communities in responsible and respectful ways? Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Liz Buchar. She's the author of the new book out this September called Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation. You can read a review of her book in the upcoming September issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Liz. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Brett. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk about this book. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you.
0: Of course. So I loved reading your book, and I loved the personal stories that you weave in throughout the book. I want to start there, I guess. So you say in the book's preface that for some time, you've noticed that your students and countless people on social media condemn various things as cultural appropriation. And you say that you've often felt that people either don't know exactly what cultural appropriation means or that claiming something as cultural appropriation often shuts down conversations abruptly and doesn't allow for much learning on anyone's part. So I'd like to start there. So we're all on the same page. How would you explain what cultural appropriation is? And then what do you mean by the term you really focus on in your book, religious appropriation? And what might be some examples of each so we can picture what you mean?
1: Yeah, sure. That's, that's a good place to start. The book really comes out of and I I say this in the preface, a little bit of a frustration in, particularly in the classroom environment, where we'd be having these sort of very complicated, nuanced conversations, and someone would kind of throw out the idea of appropriation, cultural appropriation, and then people would become very comfortable, and it would be very polarizing, and people would stop talking. Mm -hmm. And I'd sort of be like, okay, we're done. And I see the same sort of thing happening, you know, in the media, right? Once it's deployed, everyone kind of like goes back into their camp and like no conversation happens anymore. Mm. And so I think, you know, it's sort of similar to, I have a teenager and it's sort of similar to the way that she uses some words that she thinks she understands. Like for example, Mm. my teenage daughter says, anytime her dad says anything to me, She will accuse him of mansplaining. I'm like, well, that is just, he's just a man talking. It's not always mansplaining. You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's just like, she fundamentally misunderstands the concept. So I think there is some of that going on with cultural appropriation. I think that both by people sometimes who use it and some also people who think that it's just part of like call out cancel culture, right? So Mm -hmm. we first probably should just define it. And a lot of people do use it properly. And so if it's, it's cultural barring that is, appropriation and thus problematic because not of the borrowing per se, but because it's happening within these already existing you know, structures of injustice and it's exasperating or reinforcing inequality or inequity mm. or injustice. Right. So it's mm. like, it's, uh kim kardashian is my go-to example <laughs> of all things cultural appropriation right so you know it's not that her wearing box braids necessarily is a problem the problem is that when she takes credit for inventing it or people celebrate her as being innovative or edgy mm-hmm. or cool for wearing mm-hmm. them at the same time when like uh, black women, for example, are discriminated against for wearing exactly the same hairstyle, right? right? So it's the structural racism that makes the borrowing ethically fraught. The good news for that, for someone like me, who is an ethicist, is that once we can identify cases where there's some disagreement, as this appropriation or not, that's then that's an opportunity to like delve into that structural injustice conversation, which sometimes that stuff is hard to see Mm -hmm. and hard to have something concrete to talk about. So that's sort of what I think is helpful about the cultural appropriation conversation. And that's what I'm kind of trying to do with religion as well.
0: Great. Thank you. So one of the things that I really like is that your book doesn't come across as judgmental in any way. It's more reflections on what you've seen and how you've been part of some of these things as well. So you say in the book that you are, quote, a repeat offender of religious appropriation. So I think this will be helpful for listeners. How have you personally engaged in religious appropriation?
1: So again, I kind of distinguish between religious borrowing, which may not be problematic per se, and then religious appropriation, which maybe has more mm, ethical impact that maybe we don't intend, but it's problematic. So I do a lot of auto-ethnography in this book, meaning that like a lot of the method is me reflecting on some stuff that I did that I now, as an ethicist, feel like is a little problematic, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm And I'm sort of a good character in the book because then you don't feel so accused, but also because I'm someone who has no religious affiliation, right? And Mm. so I'm sort of primed for these mess ups. I start the book talking about my Madonna phase. It's the first time I stole my religion. You know, I'm baptized Catholic, grew up in a Protestant church, but I had totally rejected all that by the time I was like wearing a crucifix necklace and I Mm. was wearing that cross jewelry Following a pop culture trend Hmm. and sort of following Madonna's sort of like thumbing her nose at the Catholic Church,
0: right? Mm -hmm.
1: A lot of the wellness. Culture and industry today Mm. is forms of religious borrowing. Um, And again, as someone like a lot of my students who are uh, sort of call themselves spiritual but not religious, that's sort of a a situation that's fraught for (laughs) religious appropriation because you're sort of saying, I can take this thing Mm. and I Mm -hmm. can do it with I can do it better than that place that has an institution. Mm. I don't like institutions. Mm -hmm. And it has hierarchy. I don't like hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it has rules. Ooh, rules are icky. But I can like extract that practice and do it in its pure, authentic. Ugh, I hate that word, but you know this like mm-hmm. pure, and th- that idea is where I think leads to sort of some of the ethical um, missteps.
0: Interesting, and it's so common. I think many people would just take that as a, a as a given that it's open and available to everyone.
1: Yeah, and I think that was sort of both the reason I wanted to write this book and why the book was kind of hard to write because I I knew I might ruffle. Some founders, and it's actually why I put myself in the book because mm. you know even people in my in my subfield of religious ethics, right, who think a lot about the ethical implications of the ways in which we interact with, say, religious minorities and stuff. They some of those people were like, yeah, but but yoga, like, wait a minute, like it's for health. Certainly, I'm allowed to take anything I want to uh, yeah. for health, right? And that that's the last case in the book, and we'll probably get to it. But the health thing is really interesting, right? Because I think there there is this understanding that like we are entitled to do anything Mm -hmm. we want to if that makes us healthy. And I think Mm -hmm. I want to like put a big bubble around that and say, okay, but is there actually no impact for your choices for your own health on other people and communities? And I think COVID was this great time. Not COVID was not a great time. (laughs) COVID (laughs) was, Hey, look, COVID was pedagogically really helpful for me in the classroom, right? Because Mm. it made really present some of the things I was trying to get students to think about. And one of them was the implications for other people for your health choices.
0: So with that, you note that many people, especially who you call secular liberals, are quick to call out cultural appropriation but not as quick to call out or sometimes even notice religious appropriation. So I'm wondering why do you think that's the case and what might be an example of religious appropriation that you have seen that doesn't seem to bother secular liberals? You've mentioned yoga and we will talk about it later, but people who might be bothered by other forms of cultural appropriation who don't seem bothered by the religious appropriation or even to notice it at all.
1: There's this frustration of this like shutdown of conversation in the classroom and then there's this frustration that like, Progressive liberal liberals that I write or that I read, for example, right? Like cultural critics who I admire and read all the time have this blind spot to religious appropriation. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I think that we're really in a, and this is a good thing, we're in a moment where we're very sensitive to racial forms of injustice. So like Mm -hmm. when the appropriation is seen as a form of racial barring, like it's it's sort of like we're we're tuned to see that as a problem, right? Right. We're like, okay. Mm white people borrowing from black people. mm, There's probably some power imbalance there. Let's like, you know, be a little concerned. Yeah. (laughs) Then I'm like, but you think that religious appropriation doesn't involve whiteness? Because I think Mm. we forget that like, that is also a big part of, in fact, it's a big part of every case study I talk about Mm -hmm. in the book, right? Whether or not it's because the primary people who are borrowing are white and they're borrowing from cultures that are more marginalized, but also from cultures that are seen as othered somehow, right? So there's this like, dynamic of uh, whiteness there as well. Or there are histories that are being erased, or there are things that are saying, this part is too dangerous for Mm. mainstream white culture. So we're just going to take this piece. The part of it is a blind spot to the way in which race is is so important to sort of American religious life, which, of course, a lot of, you know, our colleagues write a lot about, but I'm not sure that that is as clear and sort of like mainstream culture. So I think that's one piece is like if you think that race is not part of religious appropriation, then yeah. you're not understanding religion. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is that so people who like really, really get cultural appropriation do a lot of writing about it. Then when they see that a case is, a religious borrowing happening, they immediately th- say that, no, that doesn't count because religions have so much power, right? So I think I saw that play out the most during the Heavenly Bodies Met Gala um, mm-hmm. big event. So for listeners who don't, who aren't obsessed with um, clothing like I am, right, this is an annual event. It's a fundraiser for the Metropolitan Museum. Of yes. art, right? It's the Costume Institute's big event. It's the who's who's red carpet celebrities, and there's always a, always a theme, right? Sometimes these themes end up with you know problematic displays on the red carpet mm-hmm. that you know cultural critics would go after. The theme was heavenly bodies, and it was about Catholic aesthetics, right? Yes. Yeah, and so everyone showed up and like dressed as Jesus or like wearing the 16th chapel on the, on their, you know, cleavage <laughs> or like, you know, it's you know, Rihanna came as the Pope. There was mostly celebration of that. And there were some grumblings like on Catholic Twitter, for example, about like, you know, this sort of looks like, you know, my culture is not your costume kind of thing. What I found the most interesting with that whole dynamic was the pushback so hard against that by fashion reporters, by cultural critics, people who are usually very tuned to cultural appropriation. And the justification was like, no, 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 like the Vatican signed off, like they're cool with it. So it's totally fine. Right. Um, and the Vatican did sign off, actually, they donated pieces, you know, there's mm. a cardinal there, and it's Prada shoes. But then again, that also misunderstands the way that religions work, right? Like, The Catholic Church is not just the hierarchy, the Vatican. There may be many lay Catholics who have a reaction and and a a feeling of being marginalized or hurt by the that that the Vatican doesn't speak Mm -hmm. on behalf of all Catholics, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Also, I think there was this idea like, well, the Catholic Church is like powerful and has been bad throughout history, and like the power dynamic is the other way, which like. Fair enough, the Catholic Church, right? The institution. But that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, disenfranchisement of Catholics in the mm-hmm. US history, for mm-hmm. example, or that Catholics mm-hmm. haven't been a target of all kinds of discrimination. Sure. So, that itself, like that this church, for example, this institution has a lot of money, for example, isn't enough to get a pass. So, there's, you have to sort of pay more attention. And I, I the way I sort of deal with this, I kind of look at the edges, right? So, who, who's already marginalized within the church, within this community, mm-hmm. and what are they saying and how are they reacting? Because I want to listen to their feedback and see if that changes my perspective on how mm-hmm. this is landing.
0: Thank you. That's very helpful. So, you focus on three main case studies in the book. So, I'd like to chat briefly about each. And the first is what you call Solidarity Hijab. So, first, let me just ask what is Solidarity Hijab and what has been its purpose?
1: Yeah. So, Solidarity Hijab is a term I use for any time, anytime like a political campaign picks up the symbol of a Muslim headscarf, of a hijab, Mm -hmm. and adopts it, like either puts it on their poster blasts it out, or in the case of, uh, one of the cases they look at, asks women, non-Muslim women, to put it on for the day Mm -hmm. or for the week. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that for the intention of sort of combating gender Islamophobia. We will like show you Muslim women that we are like on your side, and that will decrease either um, in the case of the the first case I talk about, which is during the women's March, it's sort of a pushback against Trump's rhetoric, which Mm -hmm. is both anti-women and anti-Muslim. And then after the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand, it was seen as a way to sort of like show care and solidarity for a community that had had this mass shooting directed Mm -hmm. at it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm sort of calling Solidarity Hijab with, you know, usually by you know, well-intentioned, I'm using air quotes, which doesn't work on a podcast, I realize, <laughs> <Yes>. but, Yeah. <laughs> well-intentioned, you know, uh, usually non-Muslims, usually liberals, as a way to sort of combat, uh, an intention, the intention is to combat gendered Islamophobia.
0: Right. Great. So then why does this practice of solidarity hijab raise concerns for you? And why have some Muslim women objected to this attempt to address the Islamophobia that you just described?
1: Yeah, so the second part of your question is the answer to the first part. Right? Mm. So it raises concerns for me because so many mm. Muslim women have objected to it. It's very important, I think, that we like listen to the the, the voices of the practitioners, yes. right? Versus like from some place. I mean, this is this is a problem in my field sometimes. Ethicists are sort of like <laughs> pronouncing judgment on from from up top. But so for me, the reason why it was flagged as an issue was because I was hearing a lot mm. of concerns from Muslim women. So I would say, you know, if my first reaction, for example, for the first case I used, which is like the use of a solidary hijab during the Women's March, so sort of this anti-Trump patriarchy. When I first saw that, I was like, I'm so sort of the target audience for that image. I like want Muslim women to be enfolded into the mainstream feminist movement. I, you know, I think, oh, this is a moment of intersectionality. You know, I'm going to replace my... Facebook profile with it, as did like mm. a bunch of my colleagues. And same thing happened with the New Zealand case I look at that like when just when the prime minister first put on a headscarf in um New Zealand, I was like, wow, like that wouldn't happen here. There we go. There's my autoethnography. Like I'm an expert in Islam. I'm actually an expert in hijab, having written two books about it. Yeah. And I have a training in ethics. And I still, at first, my gut reaction is like, this is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I like, well pretty quickly after the christchurch i was like this is going to go bad pretty quick um but you know it, when the when the first example happens in the women's march and i started like listening to what was being said there's a lot of concerns coming up not not all muslim women right but if you take the us for example about 42% of us muslim muslims who are women don't wear hijab hmm. so if you're going to represent all mm-hmm. muslim women mm-hmm. by a woman in a hijab, you're erasing, right? More than half a Muslim. That feels like an erasure. Like, how can this piece of clothing represent my entire community? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so tokenizing, right? So there was that sort of concern. Um, I think another concern that was felt and across the cases they looked at was that this. This attempt at allyship. First of all, none of us asked you for it, so it's not really allyship, right? And it's centered non-Muslim women, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you are Mm -hmm. so brave for putting on. So, like, now we're talking about all these non-Muslim women who are putting on a headscarf or carrying the symbol, and we're not. No one's paying attention to the community that we're taught that we're supposed to be talking about, right? right? So, there's an image in the book. It's on page 66 of the book. Um, of this happening during the. Uh, funeral services for the Christchurch victims. The image that was circulating through most of the international press, like the AP, was not of people, the community that was sort of mourning, which I guess wouldn't be appropriate. But the the big image that I saw everywhere was a Michelle Evans who's a, a constable she's like blonde, she's wearing a black hijab and carrying some like i don't know guns, but some automatic big scary gun and that's the image and like how wonderful she is that's the news story right versus like this tragedy so this decentering of the community was a big concern and then I think the other thing that comes up is like this doesn't do anything if there's structural injustice that causes gender Islamophobia or violence against Muslims or Muslim women you playing dress up for a day you don't have any skin in the game you get to take it off Mm -hmm. you didn't change anything you feel better and now you go back to your life right so Mm. in some ways it appeases you so it's almost worse than doing nothing so those sorts of things again well-intentioned but didn't, and, and not everyone agrees in the Muslim community, right? This is also part of the, the interesting thing about religious communities and the beauty of them is that there's so much diversity within them. But there were definitely some very loud voices that were like, yeah, no, thank you. This is not what we asked for. And this is not what allyship looks like.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Well, so then I want to transition uh, a little bit to the next case study. You dedicate one chapter to something that you not only participated in, but led college students to do as well. And that's a Catholic pilgrimage in Spain, the Camino de Santiago. And I'd love it if you could walk us through some of the layers of your thinking and the new reflections on this. Uh, So first, if you could just share with everyone um, why you came to start a study abroad program to take college students on a religious pilgrimage, and what did you think or hope such a course could achieve?
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is another totally different case study. So if if the solidary hijab was the like politics chapter. This is like the education chapter, this Mm. case study, right? So I'm at Northeastern University, which has a really super robust global experience program. Um, And they don't just do study abroad. They do these super intense one month, you learn two classes, like you're with a faculty from Northeastern, one or two, you're on the ground, you're in class all day or doing site visits all day. It's super intense. And I said, okay, I'll lead one, but I'm not taking them to my sites of research. I want to think about what will be draw for the type of student that I want to bring and will be a laboratory for thinking about comparative religion and ethics. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's actually very odd that I ended up in Spain because that wasn't a site of research at the time for me. Um, my Spanish is like only okay, you know, <laughs> um, but it's a, an amazing laboratory to think about and study comparative religion. So usually what we do is we start in the South of Spain and we sort of study and think about the interaction of muslim jews and christians particularly during the 700 years of like moorish um rule you can see the way that the inner the um, food gets mashed up the words get mashed up the mm. architecture gets mashed up and also um it's particularly interesting about the south of spain is like the narrative of spanish history you know and who is the winner and who is the victim mm. and who mm-hmm. is the attacker um it actually shifts from town to town based on like what the material evidence they have to take you on tours. But then I was like, okay, that's awesome. But I would also love to do something that for a college student will feel like, will make them uncomfortable enough that they will really have learning experience. I want to do it. Mm -hmm. Like It'll be this life-changing experience. And the first year I went, I didn't know what I was doing. It rained every day. I didn't get along with the guide. We got lost every day. <laughs> oh. I didn't think we were going to make it to the end. They oh. all cried. I cried. I mean, it was just like <laughs> everyone cried. It was it was such an intense experience that I wanted to keep doing it um, after that. But then I think that when I was writing this book, it was this opportunity to stop and think like, okay.
0: Hmm,
1: is there something a little icky about taking, not the south of Spain, because that's more like a history class, but when we do the Camino and I like march them along for 15 days and I like try to make them uncomfortable and make them cry and they are pretending to be pilgrims and they signed up because they think that pretending to be pilgrims and most are not Catholic hmm. and most are not Christian will give them some experience that they will take forward with them? Is there something? maybe problematic about that right so that's a lot of the reflection in that chapter like why did they come on this trip when most of yeah. them are not studying they're not studying religion like they're neuroscience majors right but what do they think they can get out of this trip and then where's the impact that we're having that maybe i didn't realize the first year and it's sort of accumulation of doing it five times with students that i'm like oh okay there's there there's something else going on here that i want to pay attention to um and you know and there, it's, it's a lot of ways to talk about it one is that. To walk the Camino and to celebrate the Camino as a space of like intercultural exchange and interreligious, you know, everyone is welcome and it's just amazing, is to erase the fact that it it only kind of exists because of a particularly dark moment of um, Spanish history, between, mm-hmm. particularly in terms of religion, right? Like, so I don't think it's like coincidence that they find the bones of this uh, apostle that we're on pilgrimage to. They find his bones just at the time when they're trying to get more Christians to come into northern Spain to get the Moors out of Spain, right? We're on our way to supposedly the grave, the bones of Apostle St. James. His nickname in Spanish is Santiago. His other nickname is Moor Killer, Matamoros. Mm. And And the yeah, and there's all this imagery that you just like walk by on the Camino, which is like him crushing, literally crushing the heads of Muslims like on his big white horse, right? So there's there's that problematic part that like gets erased away. Um, So there's that piece of it. There are a couple of things that like, I only by like thinking about it in the context of this book did I realize. Another thing was that there was a real push for my students, even the ones who weren't Protestant to like make the Camino more Protestant. Like the experience is the way that sort of like Protestants think about pilgrimage. So it's not, this is not a sacrament. There's no sort of like, indulgences that you own. It's your own personal experience with like whatever God you make out of it. you ever Mm -hmm. want to make out. So there's this like, Mm -hmm. and I think the Catholic church itself promotes that to get more pilgrims to come. And if you read the book, we don't have time to go into now because it's sort of a nice thick story, but the God squad story is a story that most people, well, they don't like it, but it's like kind of, um, it's the emotional probably climax of that chapter where I have this group of evangelical students who kind of take over the trip. And seeing what they were doing and how they were interacting with the church and the other Catholics on our trip made me realize that that was happening in a lesser degree. Like we were all doing that to a lesser degree. Mm-hmm. where We were just sort of claiming that Christianity is this and we reject the Catholic church and we reject all its trappings, even though we're going to definitely do this Camino because it's totally fun. Um, and so that sort of like we can do Christianity, we can do the communal pilgrimage better than the actual – Catholics Hmm. who were on this trip with us Mm -hmm. that I realized was a dynamic that was happening. And so that was, the thing I was raised that. And I think the third thing about this, which is really hard for me because I haven't been back with students um, is that I just started to realize that there's something fundamentally for me, icky about a study abroad program that puts experiential religious practice at its core Mm -hmm. that we take that a professor of religious studies and I'm not a theologian, right? So I'm not going as like, a catholic i'm not I'm not not teaching at a university where i could be leading a catholic sort of trip was but i'm going to take you somewhere where you can just sample a little religion um and that you will you will know that religion or you will know that practice by just pretending to do it for a couple of days um that and that they thought they were getting an authentic experience and i don't think i problematized that enough versus bringing them and being like what do you think you're going to get out of this? Where does that construction of authenticity come from? Okay, mm-hmm. now who's actually constructing your pilgrimage? Mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. The Catholic mm-hmm. churches, mm-hmm. the local economy is, you mm-hmm. know. So, like, there's all kinds of there are ways in which I could have made it more problematic for them and less enjoyable, right? But that's that's my my job is not to make your <laughs> study abroad enjoyable, right? My job, I think, often our job in religious study is sort of to unsettle people and kind of. um, shake them up a little bit. And it's a great thing for that, but that's not the program I was teaching those five years.
0: Great. Thank you. So then I want to transition to something we've teased a few times throughout the episode and now speak talk directly about your thoughts on yoga. So as part of the research for your book, you say that you became a 200-hour certified yoga instructor who, quote, had to figure out how to teach yoga in a way that did not feel like an exercise in colonialism, end quote. So first, for listeners who've practiced yoga for years and who have never thought of it as religious appropriation, how can practicing yoga be an example of religious appropriation? And then also, So, how can people who love yoga and who want to practice it respectfully do so in a way that, as you say, is not an exercise in colonialism?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, that's a super compact question. So, I'm going to tease it apart a little bit. Um, Let me take the first part first, which is like, Why do I think this might be a, a case of religious appropriation when like most, like you say, most yoga studios don't talk about religion at all. And actually that for me is the red flag. In the book I talk about, I try to draw a distinction. Like we've sort of created something called respite yoga, which is like, I mean, it's not always feel good. It could be in a hot room where you feel bad during it. But the idea is that you feel good and you're like, you're building your health or you're building your mental um, uh balance balance yeah yes. or uh, resilience is the word i was looking for that <laughs> that buzzword right um but and that the religion is in some ways erased from it and by religion i mean it's connection to traditions of uh of south asian philosophy and religion so it's not that i want to say like like yoga comes directly from hinduism or jainism or sikhism or buddhism but certainly the 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 postures that we practice so much in an you know, yoga in the U.S. today are so popular, are a part of a devotional practice that developed in a particular context that had... It didn't just exist as like, you know, it wasn't just calisthenics, right? It was mm-hmm. in within a larger worldview and a larger understanding of the cosmos and metaphysics and philosophy and, you know, the meaning of life and all this stuff. And we, I and, and I mean this as like Americans, you know, a lot of great scholarship showing what happens to the, like the invention, the development of yoga as it comes, as it moves west and the interaction of east and west. But part of that story is that, when some of these devotional practices showed up in the U.S., they were rejected as too Eastern, too dangerous, too foreign. And then when they get scrubbed of whatever people think as is too – like, let's scrub out the Eastern stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll just keep the stuff that we like, and we'll call that the respite, and we'll just – we'll deny the devotional. And it happens – Very interesting for me, the place I got my certification, Kripalu Yoga, it actually happens within that lineage. There's a moment where they're like, we are religious. And then there's a moment where they break and they're no no longer religious. And they're Hmm. super strong and deny that there's anything religious about their yoga. And yet we're learning yoga in a room with an altar. And, you know, there's all this devotional language baked in. And we're studying ancient religious ideas i don't know how else to put them so Mm -hmm. if someone's a religious studies person i'm like i I mean it's a little (laughs) religious to me right so it's probably that like insistent that there's nothing religious about it all this is safe for you if you don't want to have any interaction with religion um and we will whitewash it part of it is whitewashing it Um, and we will make it something you know. It's Pilates, but it's also Pilates plus. Like the reason we like it is we think it's got a little spirituality still sprinkled in. Like we like our little like pseudo liturgy, our little namaste at the end. We mm-hmm. like the you know. Uh, so it's it's not religion, but yet it is kind of religion, right? So the, <laughs> that insistence that it's not is partly what gets my antenna going. That is there forms of this that are religious appropriation. So what gets left behind is interesting to me. Um, which communities feel um marginalized or not welcome in all this like mm-hmm. yoga mm-hmm. space. Like I'm not one of the people. I'm like a white lady who lives in Brookline. I felt totally welcome in my yoga training. Who didn't feel welcome was the one South Asian woman who kept being told that she wasn't doing it right or she wasn't flexible enough, right? It's who's getting othered in these spaces as part of that, that conversation. And I think it's similar to what was happening a little bit when we were talking about solidarity hijab is that it's I think that the wellness community tries to see itself as like progressive and liberal, but there's something about the, the term is spiritual bypassing where like, there's something about like, if you're upset with everything that's going on in the world right now, just take a yoga class and you won't be upset anymore. But like, we should be upset. Mm -hmm. Like there's Mm -hmm. bad stuff happening right now. Right. There's again, that's the structural injustice. That's like systemic racism, whatever. COVID is bad. We got all this stuff going on. And if this practice Means that you sort of retreat into yourself and away from the world. Like that, that to me is something I want to unpack a little bit too. Um, But then to take the last part of your question, like I'm not a people not doing yoga, right? (laughs) So I still have myself a practice. What was hard was that, so like, how do I teach this and it doesn't feel like an exercise in colonialism? Like, I actually tried to teach yoga. I taught yoga, I taught it to private clients, I taught it on campus, and I found the practice of teaching it much more ethically fraught than my own personal practice so that I could mm-hmm. learn about and and sort of figure out how to do it in a way that felt comfortable. It felt more private. When I first tried to teach it to my students at Northeastern, my first sort of run at it was to like erase out, redact out all the religion. But that meant I also kind of like redacted out all the South Asian-ness of it. Like I only mm-hmm. used English words. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk about mm-hmm. any of the philosophy, any of the ideas behind the practices as if they're like, it was basically a like Pilates class, right? Um, and then I was like, "Well, that—that's not what I want to do." And I don't feel comfortable teaching the part of my yoga practice, which it feels like it's more on the edge of devotional. I don't want to teach. That's—I don't feel comfortable in that role. Yeah. So I don't. I—I I think that the way people who love yoga who want to practice it still respectfully, right? It's finding. uh if you're going to a studio, it's finding a space—a studio that you think is doing education around some of these issues, right? So my studio has really li- leaned into uh, sort of like a, a, how to be a good ally, some of the structural forms of inequity and injustice in the world and done a lot of sort of like educational outreach as well. Maybe you want to do some reading. And so you under- so you know, for yourself, like, what does mm-hmm. namaste mean? Do I feel mm-hmm. comfortable mm-hmm. saying that
0: mm-hmm. who is this
1: teacher this teacher this lineage of yoga i'm doing these 26 poses like what was the guy who developed that per, like that process really like like is that someone who i like want to be like thinking about and embodying every day so i just think partly it's just like understanding what you're doing and the spaces that you're doing them in and where your mo- what your money is supporting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly, the first question I always get when I talk about this from the audience, I always have someone stand up and go, do I have to give up
0: yoga? <laughs>
1: you do not have to, get, like, this is not about, I'm not trying to shame anyone out of any sort of practice, but like, as is there things you could do that you yourself then could decide that this would make, I now I feel confident that my practice is ethical and not causing harm to other people.
0: That's good. That's a good transition to our last question. And for our last question, I'd actually like to ask a question that you pose near the end of the book. You ask, Is there a way to borrow our religion in more responsible ways? And one of the answers that you give is: quote, I don't think the solution is stealing less, but stealing more. So what do you mean by that? For listeners who aren't Buddhist but who want to engage in Buddhist meditation practices, or people who aren't Jewish but are drawn to Kabbalah, what advice would you give to people? Who who are interested in engaging with religious traditions that maybe aren't their own in ways that are respectful and responsible?
1: I think the big takeaway is when I say the solution is not stealing less but stealing more, I mean kind of leaning more in to the religion, but more like all of the religion. So if you're interested in this practice, why you're interested in it? what is it connected to? What are the ethics, what are the values behind it? What is the metaphysics implied? And to really like learn about that more before just, you know, mm-hmm. jumping mm-hmm. into what staging your house or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways this book is a very simple book and a simple call for religious literacy and like, you know, let's go religious studies and you should all come take our classes and know what you're doing because I know you're all Interested in My students are all interested in spiritual practices. I'm using air quotes again. Um, but they don't take religious studies classes, and I want them to know what they're doing and not to think that you can just so easily decouple practices from the rest of it, right? So, you know, Mallory and I has got this great framing of religion is not a thing. It's not a noun. It's a verb we do. So, if you are doing the religious things, you are doing religion. Even though you think you're not, you're doing religion. So, you know, make sure you know what that means. So, partly it's educating yourself. I think the end result of education kind of will probably lead you in two different ways, depending on what the practice is and who you are and stuff. It may lead you to decide that this doesn't feel appropriate for me. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. So, like, I don't put on hijab as an act of solidarity, given everything I know about about it as a practice, right? I don't say namaste at the end of classes. I actually just can't say it. It's not like I'm feeling like I judge to everyone else. I just now knowing what I know and how it lands on some people's ears, I don't feel comfortable saying it. I don't want to say it. But I think the other thing can happen too, right? I think the hardest thing to write in this book is a story I wrote and it's in, in the conclusion and it's a section I wrote during COVID lockdown because. When the world changed, I was at Carpalo doing, having already finished my two hundred sur- hour certification, I was starting another five hundred hour, and I was doing a meditation retreat. And it was I was there the week everything shut down. And ah so, I mean, I'll give away too much of to the conclusion probably right now, but like, you know, I, I'm not someone who likes meditation. I actually hate meditation. I find it like I get like hot and uncomfortable. I don't like to sit still. I like the physical motion of postural yoga. I do not like meditation. And so I walked in this training being like super interested in the philosophy and metaphysics behind it, but not liking the practices or knowing thinking I wouldn't like them. By the end of the training, by the time I left, I had really like really really gotten I mean, we were like meditating for six hours a day and they were connecting all the practices to these deep traditions. It was like my scholar brain and my practice, like everything was like clicking. And I, and I came out of that going, all right, this is great. I got this meditation practice now. I'm going to go home. We're going to kick COVID's butt. I'm going to have my kid meditate. I'm going to have my husband. <laughs> everyone's going everyone's to meditate and it's all going to be fine, right? And so I was thinking the practice was going to solve. You know, and of course I went home and my, my partner was like, I do not want to meditate. If I have any time, I'll go for a run. And my kid was like, You're kidding, right? Like, go away. I'm on YouTube. And I did not want to meditate either.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: But what I did start seeing was like like my response to that that period of real uncertainty. I didn't meditate, but I did find myself returning to the religious devotional ideas around the meditation. Like I I found myself like repeating things like this too shall pass. All these ancient religious and philosophical traditions I've been studying for 10 days. It was the devotional stuff, not the like practice stuff. It was the ideas that had really sunk into me. Now doing the things had made the ideas sink in. That I want to open up space for that as well. Like realize if you engage in these practices and you take them seriously, it may be, I'm not saying like there's a moment of conversion, but there may be that the, the ideas behind them, the beliefs behind them start to settle in you as well. I'm like not pro or con either one. I think it depends on, there's lots of different religious practices and there's lots of different religious communities. And you have to think about how, you know, your own relationship to them and again, the different structures of injustice that you are implicated in as who you are and your positionality. But uh, yeah, that having to write about that and even just having to talk about it right now is Immensely uncomfortable for me, a secular liberal, non-religious affiliated hmm. for yeah. studies professor, yeah. right? But it's also true. <laughs> so yeah. there you go.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for this fascinating conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Liz Bucar. You can find a review of her forthcoming book, Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation, in the Revealer's upcoming September issue at therevealer.org. And you can order your copy of Stealing My Religion online now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the Revealer's upcoming special issue on trans lives and religion. In in the meantime i hope you stay safe and healthy thanks for listening to this episode of the revealer podcast with music by kevin mcleod and production editing by cameron anderson if you'd like to get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you email us at therevealerpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org